Think about the Mesa Verde region as a multicultural region. There are many tribal groups living here, right? And this area was actually part of a hemispheric trading network where people were connected all the way down into Central and South America, over in Southeastern United States, and as far west over into California. We find chocolate that's coming from Mexico, residues in places like Chaco Canyon. And it seems that folks were importing items to add beauty to their everyday life. This is Mesa Verde Voices, a podcast connecting modern people to the people who lived around Mesa Verde hundreds of years ago. And I'm your host, Kayla Woodward. In this season, we're talking all about trade. The voice you just heard was Bridget Ambler, the Supervisory Curator for Canyons of the Ancients National Monument Visitor Center and Museum, located just north of Mesa Verde National Park near Cortez, Colorado. In the first episode, Bridget told us about the scope of trade throughout the Southwest during the time of occupation at Mesa Verde. We heard about routes as far-reaching as Mexico and the California coast, and trade relationships as close-knit as neighboring villages in present-day Montezuma Valley. That's the massive valley visible from the northern overlooks of Mesa Verde National Park. And as always, as we dive into the cultural past of the ancestral Pueblo people, we'll also be looking at how these traditions, practices, and worldviews live on to their descendants today. I started a project looking at ceramic cylinder jars from Chaco Canyon about 20 years ago. For this episode, I drove southwest out of Cortez on a rainy morning in March, perhaps on a route similar to one that Pueblo traders may have followed 1,200 years ago. And I made this journey to chat with the anthropologist who led a very important study. I am Patricia Crown. I am a professor at the University of New Mexico in the Department of Anthropology. But this year, right now, I am a Weatherhead Fellow at the School of Advanced Research in Santa Fe. And so about 20 years ago, Dr. Crown started this project looking at cylinder jars coming out of Chaco Canyon. Chaco Canyon is a large cultural site in present-day northern New Mexico, actually about halfway between Mesa Verde and Santa Fe, protected by the National Park Service as Chaco Culture National Historical Park. Chaco was once a trading center and spiritual hub of the Pueblo world, containing villages like Pueblo Benito, with the largest known Great House, and Casa Rinconada, with the largest Kiva in the southwest. And one of the many things that Chaco is known for is their cylinder jars. Cylinder jars are ceramic vessels. Think of these kind of like a glass that you might use to drink water. And then they're about two and a half times as tall as they are wide. The ones at Chaco typically had a flat base, but they can be found in a variety of shapes and sizes. What distinguishes them? That they're tall vessels, usually with very straight sides. And so these ceramic vessels, or jars, are very different from the usual ceramic cooking vessels, seed jars, and bowls that are commonly found in the ancient villages in the Southwest. So the obvious next question would be, what are they for? And from the start, Dr. Crown thought that they would have been used for drinking. I thought they were probably drinking vessels based on their shape, because the shape often tells us how to use something, and these look so much like drinking vessels that are used around the world. So I thought one way to pursue that would be to do organic residue analysis. 
She got involved with a few different studies looking at the organic residue left inside the cylinder jars, trying to figure out how these vessels may have been used. One study was looking at the possibility of a corn beer, but she found that the corn was actually pretty hard to identify. Because most of the lipids in corn are found in so many other plants, there's nothing that says, I'm corn. Some help finally came when she was able to talk to a fellow scientist who studies the ancient Mayan culture in present-day Mexico. But it was when I was talking to a Mayanist about cylinder jars in the Maya area that the cacao idea came. And it was because I'd noticed on the Chacoan cylinder jars that some of them had plaster on them. And I believed that they might have been plastered, much like a wall would be. You may have seen some of this thick clay plaster smoothed onto the walls in villages such as Balcony House or Cliff Palace at Mesa Verde. And then what are called post-firing pigments put on them, so designs in colors like greens and blues that you cannot get with fired ceramics in the Southwest. And so I called her to ask her specifically in the Maya area, was plaster put on their cylinder jars, which are earlier than the Chaco and cylinder jars, and then post-firing pigments? And she said, yes, in fact, it's very distinctive. They put a color called Maya blue, which is a really beautiful sort of denim color almost on some of the vessels. And so we were chatting about that. And I finally said, well, how were, how were cylinder jars used in the Maya area? And she said they were used for drinking cacao. Cacao comes from the Theobroma tree, which is a tropical plant that grows in places like present-day Mexico. The seeds from this plant can be processed into chocolate. Now the cacao drink Dr. Crown is talking about is made by roasting the seeds crushing them, and then soaking them or pouring boiling water on them, kind of like brewing coffee. And I asked how they knew that if they'd done organic residue analysis, and she said that they had done organic residue analysis, but the vessels also say it on them. In hieroglyphics, it says that this is so-and-so's jar used for drinking cacao. So lucky Mayanists, they have all the information they need right on the vessel. And that's when Dr. Crown had an interesting thought. In Chaco and other parts of the Southwest, we get scarlet macaws, which are birds that come from the tropics. Cacao comes from the tropics. It would be so much easier to put cacao beans in your pocket and walk up to Chaco or go down to the cacao and get some to where they're being grown than it would be to bring a live bird, you know, 1,600 kilometers up to Chaco Canyon. For the Mayanists, most of the work had been done by a nutritional chemist at the Hershey Company. And yes, that's the Hershey Company, like Hershey chocolate bars in Hershey, Pennsylvania a nutritional chemist by the name of Jeff Hurst. So when I got off the phone, I called him and asked if he might be willing to analyze some shirts from Chaco. And he was willing to do that. So how does someone go about testing a 1,000-year-old piece of broken pottery to see if it was once used for holding a very specific beverage? 
The way that I do it is to find a sherd, a broken piece of pottery that's about the size of a dime. And then we take a Dremel tool, sterilize a uh, tungsten carbide burr and burr off all of the outside of the sherd. And this is done to prevent any type of contamination. So what we're looking for are absorbed residues, the residues that are actually in the wall of the pot rather than anything sitting on the surface. And then that interior paste, as archeologists call it, is ground in a sterile mortar. And then water, warm water is added to that. And that's what is analyzed. And the output from that is what's called a chromatogram. When they're running this analysis, they're looking for three particular substances, or markers, to confirm that this is cacao. One, theobromine, which is pretty distinctive for cacao in North America. Two, caffeine. And three, theophylline. Those three are, are the markers that we're looking for. Caffeine should be very low with chocolate, and theobromine should be high. Dr. Crown took five sherds of cylinder jars from excavations in the middens or trash mounds at Pueblo Benito from work that had been done previously by the University of New Mexico Department of Anthropology. And I sent them, I think in about 2007, and it took almost 18 months before I got results. But then I got a phone call from Jeff and he said, sit down. And he told me that he had found positive residues in three of the five sherds. And that one of them, the chromatogram, was actually the best match he'd seen to cacao. So it was very exciting to hear that. I hadn't really told anybody except my husband about the work that I was doing on this because I thought, well, if it doesn't turn out, people won't think I'm stupid. And if it does turn out, you know, it can be a nice surprise. So I, I danced in the street for a while after hearing that because it was very exciting to find out a new fact about Chaco Canyon. Okay, so now we know they're drinking cacao in Chaco. And it would be easy enough if they are already trading more challenging things like live macaws, which we'll hear about in a later episode, by the way. It's easy enough to just bring those cacao seeds with them. But I wondered what that ongoing trade of cacao would have looked like. It needs moist warmth and shade, and it would never survive in Chaco Canyon or anywhere else in the Southwest. And so to get cacao, there had to be connections to areas in Mesoamerica that had cacao plants. How those got there, we don't really know. Either people from here had to walk down and get them, or people from there had to walk up and offer them, or they had to pass hand to hand to hand. And I think it's possible that all of those may be true at various times. The important thing would be that for ritual purposes, you would have to have an ongoing supply. You'd have to know that you could get it, or else you could work for a certain period of time in order to get it and then throw a kind of, of ritual celebration. But there still had to be those connections. You had to know that somehow you could get it. 
I wanted to know if this tradition or ritual use of cacao lives on today for the descendants of the ancestral Pueblo people from Chaco. These descendants are the people at Hopi, Zuni, and the Pueblos around the Rio Grande River in New Mexico. You know, that, that kind of uh, use and knowledge seems to have been simply relegated to those prehistoric times. This is Lyle Balinqua. My name is Lyle Balinqua. I come from the Hopi tribe in northeastern Arizona. I'm a member of the Greasewood clan from the village of Bakavi on 3rd Mesa. And for the past 20 plus years, I've been working as an archaeologist here in the southwest. I asked Lyle what the use of cacao looks like at Hopi today. Once Hopi became established here where we're at today, you know, that kind of resource uh, wasn't available anymore and it doesn't appear in, in any kind of archaeological context here at Hopi, at least that we've identified yet. We know that Hopi ancestors were there at Chaco Canyon. We have oral histories that place certain clans at Chaco. We also know that there were things happening there that were, were not meant to be continued on, whether they were negative or where they were just so specialized knowledge that they eventually died out and that knowledge went with it. may have even been uh, relegated to a particular clan group or society that would maintain that knowledge. And this is Louis Garcia. My name is Louis Garcia. I am Tiwa and Pito Pueblo. I'm an educator and a traditional Pueblo weaver. And just like Lyle, Louis is not familiar with the ceremony that includes drinking cacao in his community today. I agree with Lyle in that there are certain groups and clans that may have um, died out for specific reasons. Because of the nature of clanship societies, if everyone from a particular line were to die out, that would mean that the knowledge of that group would go with them. And that is a natural part of life in, in the Pueblo perspective. And so for the most part, that's respected. And so no effort is made to revive some of those things. It, it was probably purposefully left behind. I, I know in Hopi, there are traditions that we speak about and ceremonies that we still maintain knowledge of, but we no longer practice those ceremonies or traditions anymore. Sometimes when traditional knowledge or power is abused, then sometimes things are laid to rest for a specific reason. So that's just always kind of respected and observed. And for whatever reason, again, maybe it was an abuse of power or maybe it was just having too much power, but you know, for whatever reason, those ceremonies, those traditions didn't carry on into today's modern practices. You know, and, and I think when the Spanish came into the Southwest, I think that disrupted a lot of things. And Lyle is not alone in this thought about the Spanish disrupting things as they entered this hemisphere. It is possible that when the Spanish arrived in the New World... You may remember from history class that they arrived by way of the Caribbean in the 1490s. ...that they cut off whatever kind of supply trains were bringing material into the Southwest or people coming down and getting cacao. They may have captured the kind of system that allowed for economic movement of cacao. You know, I think there were still some traditions and ceremonies that were actively ongoing 
But when that intrusion came in, you know, it was like a big fault line. You know, some archaeologists talk about it, you know, really disrupting a lot of tradition and that kind of aspect. And so I think maybe some of that knowledge was lost during, you know, that transition. But we definitely know that, you know, we had access to those to those resources, you know, in, in ancestral times. Now, the general use of cacao does still carry on today throughout Mexico and has even blended with the Spanish culinary traditions that came into the region in the late 1400s. My wife being from Nahuatl community in, in Morelos, the cacao is very widespread in Mexico and it's a common culinary item. The Nahuatl people are descendants of the Aztecs. Louis and his wife still participate in the trade of cacao today, bringing it back home with them on trips down to Mexico. But the use when they bring it back to New Mexico is not the same as those cacao ceremonies at Chaco. We'll often bring back cacao. Um, as a teacher, as an educator, I do a unit on uh, traditional medicine. So we do a little bit of research in, in the kind of properties that chocolate has or cacao and the different ways that it's prepared in different parts of Mexico and how it was adopted into like the colonial culinary through the making of mole. If you're not familiar with it, mole is a traditional marinade or sauce used in Mexican cuisine. We also buy processed, especially from Oaxaca or Puebla, to bring that up and enjoy it here and have it. That's what's nice about um, cacao is it preserves for long periods of time. You can buy processed mole in the raw form and it, it'll stay like that for a long, long time. And you can later prepare it as strong as you want to have it whenever. So it's, it's very durable and a very important trade item, as we know. It's really important to think of the ancestral pueblos as a dynamic culture that did not exist in a vacuum. And there was contact between indigenous groups of people since time immemorial and ideas were being exchanged as well as material trade items back and forth. Finding cacao in Chaco and other parts of the present-day Southwest United States is just one item on a whole list of other things the ancestral Pueblo people were acquiring from Mesoamerica. The Southwest was always part of a very large interconnected area that included Mesoamerica that shared certain beliefs about the world and there were no walls that separated the people in the southwest from people in Mesoamerica and so ideas and beliefs and objects flowed between these areas. There was a, sort of a common set of ritual beliefs that bound these groups, even though there were many different language groups and probably people didn't always get along and there was warfare and different things going on between them. There was this sort of underpinning or foundation that was shared and movement of turquoise and feathers and birds and cacao and objects and ideas and probably people and marriage partners back and forth across this, this very large area. So it's important 
to respect and to walk lightly in these places because there were very important prayers and ceremonies that were laid down in these places for specific reasons and many of which the sole purpose was to maintain a balance in the world. And when we visit these places with respect, these prayers in, in our belief are still planted in those areas. So um, respecting that and walking lightly in those areas allows those, those things to remain there and serve their purpose. Mesa Verde Voices is a production of KSJD Community Radio in Cortez, Colorado. It is created in collaboration with Mesa Verde National Park and funded by the Mesa Verde Museum Association with a matching grant from the National Park Service. Special thanks to Cindy Cooperrider, Robert Dobry, Bailey Springmeyer, and Lori Webster for your help in research for this episode. And a huge thanks to Bridget Ambler, Dr. Patricia Crown, Lyle Belanqua, and Louis Garcia for sharing your stories with us. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kayla Woodward, with engineering help from Robert Woodward. Our music is by David Morella. For more information about this topic and to see photos of the Chaco and Cylinder Jars, visit our website, mesaverdevoices.org, or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. If you'd like to see the Cylinder Jars in person, you can find information on existing exhibits on our website as well. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening.